BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey everyone, it's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're new to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, welcome. And if you're a longtime listener, welcome back. This is episode 137. On this week's podcast, we're talking with the data-driven strength guys, Zach and Josh, about a whole mess of different topics. We're talking about proximity to failure for strength gain, how to improve hypertrophy, how does muscular hypertrophy even correlate to strength, and much, much more. We've done podcasts on programming in the past. Our most recent one is episode 129, where we talk about progressive loading and kind of how we think about programming for different performance outcomes, whether that's strength, hypertrophy, cardiorespiratory endurance, or general health. Uh, You can check that episode out after this one. Uh, We also have a three-part programming series, and I've linked all those in the description below. Now, if you want to see a practical implementation of the stuff that we talk about in this podcast, we have many free and expanded templates on our website. Uh, You can check that out. I've put a link to uh, some of those in the description below, the free ones in particular, uh, if you're curious about, well, how does this actually manifest into a training program? And then those are fleshed out in much more detail in some of our uh, more expanded templates. But without any further ado, let's get into this conversation. I really had a good time this week and hopefully you guys enjoy. Hi guys, how's it going? I'm Zach uh, Robinson from Data Driven Strength here. Um, I guess I'm supposed to give a little bit of an intro about myself. Currently a master's student at Florida Atlantic University uh, studying exercise science. Um, kind of just my general background here. I originally kind of got into lifting weights for sports. I think pretty uninteresting story there. Um, kind of got into research in undergrad at Ohio State University. Um, kind of fell in love with, you know, translating the scientific information to kind of be applicable to all lifters. Kind of was the early days of data-driven strength and we've kind of gotten to our place now where we're just looking to take that and give lifters kind of common takeaways from essentially everywhere across the spectrum. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's pretty much everything I have to say. I think Josh's background is relatively the same. Um, from a performance standpoint, I uh, have a collapsed lung at the moment, so my per- performance isn't very good. Uh, so yeah, that was a pretty uh, crazy last month of training. So what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I had, a, had it collapsed my lung about a month ago. Um, so that, that has, has significantly perturbed my own training, but we're, we're back doing stuff, doing, uh, curls and squats and things, but yeah, that's, uh, 
about the most interesting note I have about performance. But yeah, Josh, I'll kick it over to you from there. Yeah, like you said, man, um, pretty similar background. Uh, just like Zach, I, I started kind of this whole to pursue this whole interest in research at Ohio State. Um, and that's where Zach and I met and kind of the the start of data-driven strength occurred um, when we met through uh, helping with research at Ohio State. And then we we're like, oh, we can we can kind of uh, take this hobby and, and pursue it further in terms of um, researching it and for our master's degrees, et cetera. So um, I'm also at Florida Atlantic University. Um, we're both under the mentorship of, of Dr. Michael Zordos, which has been awesome. Um, and yeah, uh, I think both both Zach and I are are modest powerlifters at best, but I think kind of that um, that lack of of being able to walk through a gym and get stronger has kind of driven us to, you know, really kind of dive into the nitty gritty and and you know get to that analytical side and and really kind of turn whatever dials we can for ourselves and and for our athletes. So yeah, that's about all I got. Yeah, I'm pumped to have you guys. People have been. The internet has been clamoring for the data-driven strength barbell medicine mixtape, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we're doing it. You know, and, and just a word on that analytical thing, because I, I see this like kind of polarization where people are like, "All right, well, you can either be a lifter, like a really strong, like good athlete, or you can be like this evidence-based, you know, sort of science nerd." And it's like, okay, so it doesn't those are not mutually exclusive things. And then also, I, I think that one without the other makes whatever you have weaker. So for example, yeah. you know, the, there are researchers out there who don't even lift and Hey, I I'm thankful that they're doing the research. Like that's great. But, uh, I, you know, similar to a conversation I had with Greg Knuckles last week, he's like, look, if you saw a paper by Coleman at Al or, you know, uh, you know, Dan green at Al, you'd probably be like, yeah, I'm going to give this a little more credence just because of their experience. Right. And that's helpful in addition to the actual data. Similarly, if you have somebody who's just got the experience thing, but no scientific background, it doesn't mean that the information is bad or useless or whatever. It's just like, okay, well, with this uncontrolled observation stuff, right? It's really hard to generalize that stuff without a, you know, decent evidence base. So really like that the, you guys are, you know, best of both worlds. And I don't know that it matters that you had, neither of you have squatted 700 pounds yet. You know, like, I feel like uh, I appreciate the, I appreciate the yet there. That's, uh, that's, yeah, that's well, I'm just saying it's possible. It's possible, but like, you know, when we're talking about the upper 0.00001% of human performance, it's like not a lot of people are going to get there. And the people who do get there are probably, they probably don't have the time, the resources, uh, or as my grandma would say, the chutzpah to like do all of the evidence and research uh, stuff too. So we're going to try to mash this up together. Okay. So the topic that has taken the internet by storm recently is this proximity to failure, turning this, the idea of like effective reps, the last few reps of a set where things get real, real hard and slow and everything, uh, turning that on its ear. So if you were trying to, what's the elevator pitch for the data-driven strength take <laughs> on how close you should be to failure? Uh, Zach, we can start with you. Yeah. So I think the first uh, really important piece of context to kind of throw on the table first is that this is specifically talking about strength primarily. So, and, and the other thing is to say is we're kind of taking the longitudinal evidence and working backwards from there to kind of craft an explanation in terms of a model. And obviously, if you know anything about models, all of them can be useful to some degree, but none of them are perfect. And that's probably very much the case with kind of the way that we explain things. So that's just the first piece of context I want to get on the table. But um, from a high level perspective, kind of our position based on the longitudinal evidence is that when you're using a load 
um, somewhere above a 10 RM or heavier. Um, it doesn't seem to be necessary to have what's called intraset fatigue to maximize adaptations in strength and size. And when I say intraset fatigue, really all that means is, you know, when you're moving a given load as fast as you can for that load, decreases in bar speed or getting closer to failure with that load doesn't seem to augment your adaptations any further. So when I'm using 80%, if I do doubles with that load versus, you know, sets of five or six, I don't really seem to get an additional benefit for making those, those sets a higher in an RPE. So really the idea there is that, okay, if we can kind of have these reps that are farther from failure at a given load and provide us essentially all the adaptations that we're after at a significantly lower fatigue cost, man, that seems like a win-win. And that can have downstream effects from a programming standpoint. You know, you're going to have, in general, more recovery to, to have for your top sets that are probably providing the biggest bang for your buck in terms of strength stimulus in the short to moderate term. And you kind of go from there. So really, it's just saying that, okay, from the longitudinal evidence, we can be pretty confident that when I'm using a 10RM or heavier load, the reps early in a set seem to be the ones that are providing a majority of the strength stimulus. And we think that from kind of a model perspective, we attribute that to force production. So if I have, you know, the old high school physics equation of force equals mass times acceleration at a given weight, if I can move it faster, that's probably um, indicative of greater acceleration, which would be greater force production. If the 1RM on the platform is ultimately testing maximal force production, we should probably mimic our training um, in, in a way that's going to maximize the force production of the repetitions that we're completing um, overall. So I think that's probably a relatively succinct elevator pitch, but Josh, I don't know if I missed anything or Jordan, if you want to chime in there. Yeah, Josh, anything to add to that? Uh, the longest elevator pitch, because I think it depends on the building that we're in. Maybe we're in the Burj Khalifa. <laughs> no, I, I don't have a whole lot to add here. Um, I'd, be, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, Jordan, if you have any holes to poke in it. Um, but again, just to to kind of layer on the caveats, I think it's important to to emphasize that while we we are making this case for emphasizing force production and and when you are doing a set at a given load, that the first reps in 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 that set are providing the majority of the strength stimulus. That's not to say there aren't potential other benefits from training closer to failure, and there may or may not be a time and a place for that. What we're we're just kind of trying to put on the table is, hey, from the research, it doesn't. It, it definitely doesn't seem to be the case that accumulating fatigue within a set is necessary to maximize um, to maximize strength. Um, when, when we start talking about hypertrophy, things get a little bit more complicated. But um, in general, we're just saying like, hey, if you're if you're doing if you have your five RM load on the barbell um, and you take that all the way uh, to an RP10, so you do five reps with it. A lot of people kind of have this intuition that, oh, those that fourth rep, that fifth rep. Those were the big hitters in terms of the stimulus. What we're saying is eh, kind of a rep is a rep. And, you know, that like Zach said, that might have downstream uh, effects in terms of our programming. So that's kind of my two cents to add on it there. Yeah, I think we, we have arrived at similar places from or like a similar conclusions from different places. And then also we, we never really took that next step and being like, well, the first few reps of the set are probably maybe the are probably the more useful reps. Um, our, our thing was like, okay, like we came at it from a polarized training perspective. So Joel Friel, like USA cycling coach, he kind of came up with this idea or popularized the idea of polarized training where you should have some really hard efforts. And then a lot of the bulk volume of your training is going to be relatively easy. The idea is because it, since it's so less, so much less fatiguing, you can do so much more of it and then drive these fitness adaptations via that. Whereas there's this gray zone in the middle where it's like, 
you know, pretty hard, but you're not getting any additional fitness adaptation. And because it's so fatiguing and so hard, you can't do a, a lot of it anyway. So with the five RM example, you could do one five RM. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's all you have by um, definition, <laughs> by definition. Yes. Or, or you could do multiple doubles there or many, many singles. And it's like, if the, you know, and since it's less, fati- because it's less fatiguing. So, uh, and if the first rep, or the second rep, or if you're only doing singles or doubles are giving you similar, if not equivalent sort of fitness adaptations, well, why wouldn't you do that? That's kind of, that's kind of the thing. And we came from it, uh, the perspective where, yeah, you had to do sets to near failure. And, and the thought at the time, at least in our small, stupid, un- uneducated brains was that until you get close to failure, you're not getting this motor unit recruitment, right? It's like, that was the kind of prevailing thought. Uh, and as you just go through literature, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, in vitro muscle fiber studies or actual like EMG studies or other sorts of, uh, uh, types of evidence, you realize that's not really the case. You're getting similar motor unit recruitment from like almost 30% or, or you know, even maybe a little less all the way up to 90%, you know, uh, on these volitional tasks. And so it's like, all right, well, if we're getting the same motor unit recruitment, why do we need to go close to failure for strength? And so the, where we ended up was that there's probably a wider range of, uh, loading that you can use to get stronger. And what's the optimal, you know, loading range that depends on the individual, but we were kind of thinking, all right, probably somewhere in the 70 to 80% range for like low velocity, max force production. That's probably where most of your volume comes from. You're going to need to do some specialized work, you know, closer to 90%, maybe above 90%. Those are probably going to be relegated to singles just because, so you don't, you know, over fatigue yourself. And so we kind of adopted that polarized training model. The high intensity stuff was going to be singles or 90%, maybe a little higher. And the bulk of your volume training, the easy stuff, the low stuff was going to be 70 to 80%. And then 80 to 90% was like this no man's land. Like you did a triple there or a set of five or whatever. Yeah, it's real hard. It feels like you're working really hard, but we don't know that the juice is worth the squeeze. The fitness adaptations are probably not any greater, but you're getting way more fatigue. So then you can do less of it. And then that signal to drive fitness adaptations is ultimately lower. We came to a similar conclusion from different places. You guys added on to that. Not not necessarily that you were aware of what we thought, but <laughs> you added on that maybe the first few reps uh, – uh, are, are more effective. And that really ties the room together as far from a model standpoint. And I think it's a good way to think about it. Um, one important question, you guys kind of talked about it briefly in the elevator pitch, the idea of moving every rep as fast as possible, velocity loss, et cetera. I think people maybe haven't heard as much about that. So let's talk about velocity loss. And like, d- does that in your mind represent intraset fatigue? Is that like a way to monitor intraset fatigue? So I'll, I'll kick this off and I'll make an important distinguishment between absolute and relative velocity. And then Zach, I'll I'll kick it over to you. And maybe you can talk about some of the specifics for velocity loss. So kind of the, the, the rough working model of how I like to think about this is that absolute velocity is, is not something that is is super important. Um, what we're talking about is relative velocity. So absolute velocity is okay. I'm going to write a program and say that, um, you know, point, you know, a, a certain velocity range is the quote unquote best range to, to work within. What we're saying is relative to how fast you can move a given load if you are completely fresh. So if I have uh, whatever, 75% of my 1RM on the barbell, and if I'm totally fresh, right, the first rep of a set, I can move that that 
that load at 0.30 meters per second, what we're saying is let's minimize how many reps you're doing below whatever 0.24 meters per second. So, so in terms of relative velocity, um, we're talking about relative to how fast you can move the given load uh, if you were completely fresh. So, you know, kind of a that's an important distinguishment because if you take the absolute velocity route, then you start to get into more power type training. Um, and we're not saying there's not a potential use case for that, but um, we're still talking about relatively slow work. So it might be from an absolute sense, slow velocity work, but from a relative sense, relative to how fast you can move that barbell, if you were completely fresh, it would be high velocity. So that's an important distinguishment. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then just for the listeners at home, you can get in the weeds with like peak velocity and, and whatever. But I, I think to simplify all this, we're saying that loss of velocity from what you could average, you know, move this, move a certain weight at given, uh, uh, given a fresh state, um, is kind of indicative of like things getting very difficult and, and increasing your fatigue. So in your example, if somebody started the set at 0.3 meters per second and then ended the set at 0.21 meters per second, that represents a substantial amount of intraset fatigue, provided that every rep was moved as fast as possible from a volitional standpoint. Uh, and then maybe that's too much because of the fatigue being too high. And you would prefer in this model that most of those reps stayed around 0.3, 0.29, 0.28. And then if they got below that, you'd cut it off and just do another set with, you know, fewer reps. And that's how you would accumulate your volume rather than doing one set where the bar speed got down to 0.002 and it's a grinder. And everyone's like, did you actually stop moving? Is that what happened? Yeah. You would prefer to preserve velocity almost throughout the, throughout the set, like a, an improvement in rep quality, even. I don't know if you'd go that as far to say that. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth here. Yeah, no, I, no, I think I go for it, Zach. I, go for it, Zach. I, I was going to say, I didn't have too much to add. I, I think just to tie in why we think the, you know, maximal concentric intent is so important. So if you go back to our kind of, you know, high school physics equation, if you have a, a given load in the bar, let's just say it's, you know, 200 kilos, for example, if, if I'm moving that, not as fast as I possibly can, the acceleration will be less and therefore the force production is also less. So if we're maximally, you know, trying to move the weight as fast as possible, accelerating the, the load faster, that also maximizes force production. So that's kind of why we start from that position is that, okay, we're going to take a load, move it as fast as possible. And then from there, um, as you guys kind of said, I'm, I'm just going to tie something together. I don't have too much to add. The velocity loss is essentially just, you know, from that point, to the end of the set, the more velocity loss there is, the greater you're getting, uh, closer you're getting to failure. And from the research, we know there's, you know, one study that kind of piqued our interest on this was, uh, you know, they compared 40 versus 20% velocity loss. And the, the group with the less velocity loss was the one that saw the greater strength gains. The one caveat with that kind of line of research that, you know, it has been carried out multiple times and has kind of established a similar relationship is that it's set equated and not what we would probably more closely say is total volume equated or like total repetition equated in the sense that, okay, so these groups that are not going as close to failure are also doing less total training volume. So that leaves one little limitation there. And so from our model perspective, you would say, well, okay, in the studies that generally show that a 20% velocity loss or somewhere about around there is best for strength, why aren't you recommending that? And why are you kind of recommending to minimize velocity loss altogether? And that's because, again, the lack of uh, volume equation there um, kind of comes back to our model to say, when we do have studies that equate total repetitions, it seems staying farther from failure leads to better strength gain. So that's, that's, uh, that's kind of where we start from that 
point of view. So like in general, like we said, the velocity loss, we're just trying to minimize that throughout a set, but I didn't add too much there, but hopefully that clarified just a little bit. Yeah. I think I want to add one more thing just to make sure it's clear is that um, if, if we were to take this idea of, okay, we want relatively slow efforts, right? Because that's specific to strength. Um, but we want to minimize velocity loss. You know, if you take that all the way to its end, you would end up at, at one RM training and just only hitting singles at 10, sure. which so, so again, I'm just kind of pointing out that there is a limitation here and we're, we're, we're trying to accomplish multiple tasks when we're, when we're writing a, a training program, we're trying to, of course, accumulate the, the, the requisite volume to drive progress. Um, we're trying to check that, that box. We're trying to check the box of sufficient practice with, with relatively heavy loads and, um, you know, but we're also saying, okay, how can we take that work while checking those boxes, which, you know, a ton of people have, have rightly pointed out over the years that, Hey, these are things that are really going to drive progress, but how can we adjust that protocol to also take into consideration this force production perspective? And, and this is especially the case in the short to moderate term for, for strength gains. So, um, again, I just wanted to really point out that if you take this to its logical end, you can get at some pretty weird things. We're just saying, okay, how can we layer this on? How is this an additional consideration within um, a lot of the the current best practice guidelines? Yeah, there are multiple considerations that you effectively you're making compromises because there yep. are these multiple considerations. If you were just trying to maximize velocity, you would have no load. You would just be <laughs> <laughs> body weight as fast as possible because you could move, you know, against no load. That's that's you know muscle physiology 101 like how do you how do you get a muscle to contract as fat at high velocity as possible well no load zero load but uh, that doesn't make for maximal low velocity force production so you have to load it to something but uh you just don't want to see that decay and then similarly well, okay well why aren't you programming for you know x amount of velocity loss You're like well because we know that volume is important too and so we need to like make sure we get enough volume in without accruing too much fatigue so you know that's that's the balance that's how we that's how we tie in everything together here. Um, I think one thing that is probably abstract and so hard to maybe understand for people who don't either coach folks or program for folks is like, we're, we're taking our best guess with respect to how much fatigue that we're generating via different protocols. So like a 5RM versus a set of five at eight, or if we use the same load as a 5RM, a set of three at eight, do we have any way to quantify like the different amount of fatigue for a given training person, like a tra like individual who's got X amount of uh, specific adaptations and training history, et cetera. Is there a way to like, I don't know, quantify that in any sort of way? Man, that's a, that's yeah, we're all puzzled. Yeah, like, no, say, not really. <laughs> I mean, obviously you have, you know, what people call fatigue in the research, but I don't know if that always aligns exactly what we're talking about in practice. So like, for example, like, you'll have studies that, you know, talk about muscle fatigue and they talk about creatine kinase and like markers of indirect muscle damage where, you know, that could be related to, to exactly what you mean. But in general, from like a training perspective, what we mean by fatigue is a decrement in performance and, and return to baseline. So yep. do those things always correlate? I, I know Eric Combs has talked about one study where, you know, muscle damage is extremely high or, or soreness is extremely high and force production was actually positively correlated with that. So it's like these, these, things don't always line up uh, in, in terms of exactly what we mean by fatigue. But I guess, um, yeah, from, from like an actual definition perspective, I guess if your performance has not yet returned to baseline, you are fatigued. And then from a central fatigue perspective, if we want to go into that, is like if we electrically stimulate your nerve and, and you're still not able to produce as much force, 
then that is, I guess, another marker of fatigue. But the in the context of training, obviously, we can't do that with folks we you know we interact with. So it's like, um, how do we how do we measure that? And to which I don't have a great answer. I think it's kind of just a subjective thing that uh, we're going to have to rely on some of the feedback from the from the athlete. Yeah, and just to add one more thing is, you know, if the the fatigue literature as a whole is is uh, very much a rabbit hole, and and by no, I don't I don't claim to be an expert. I know Zach doesn't claim to be an expert, but you know, our our kind of understanding is central fatigue is not a massive um, contributor to fatigue from resistance training, but kind of where we stand right now, and and again, this is just a hunch. I'm not claiming this to be evidence based. Is that there, there might be something missing in terms of what we're actually measuring in the lab in terms of measuring fatigue and kind of quantifying that. So I think this is especially a case where, you know, we need to understand the limitations of research and understand, okay, what exactly is aligning in practice? And okay, in this case, you know, when the, the example you talked about, Jordan, is, you know, certain individuals might be particularly sensitive to different protocols or whatever. I think this is a case where given the current state of the research, um, this is, this is just going to be a, a case where you have to go by experience and, and almost go by feel and try to be as objective as possible. But from a, from an evidence-based perspective, I don't know if I have an, an, an excellent answer. Um, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of where I, I'm not stuck, so to speak, but it's like when you're, if you were trying to drive, make like a training algorithm, like, all right, here's how we're going to like shape somebody's training program based on their feedback both before and after, maybe even during a session, you would like to be able to measure fatigue or quantify it in some way. And we don't really have a good way to do that. Yeah, you can track all these, what we expect are surrogates. You do CPK, you could do levels of intramuscular uh, glycogen, you could do ADP, to <laughs> whatever, you could do all these sort of things. Um, but none of those are sensitive enough or available, obviously enough for folks in the gym. So what we're just going off of is that a set to failure has a higher fatigue cost than a set, a submaximal set, like full stop. Uh, and then that fatigue cost may be out of proportion to the fitness adaptations that you can get, particularly because you can do less volume. But we're not saying that there's a certain level of fatigue, uh, you know, that and we're trying to stay below that outside of this abstract sort of discussion about, yeah, that's more fatigue versus less fatigue. And, and, uh, how does that all shake out at the end? So we can't ascribe like a number to it or a value. And which is unfortunate because people want to say, all right, well, how many like stress points should I, you know, manifest or, or do in a given workout or fatigue points, how many in a week? And it's like, uh, I don't even know like how you arrive at a number. So, uh, yeah, I think we're on the same page there. We'll just either wait for some more research or just keep winging it, but, but we're, we're doing it with good intentions. We're trying to be scientific, but it's just, yeah, the data is not there yet. 100%. Um, so the next point is, you know, I think a lot, a lot of folks, maybe not necessarily just our listenership, but in general coaches or other folks who work with the gen pop, uh, particularly folks who are new to training are like, all right, interesting idea. I see what you're saying. I see the evidence and I, I that's, that's, that's an interesting idea. I like it, but for new lifters, ugh, this is just, you're telling them you just want to go, they want to go in the gym and just do a bunch of sub maximal work. Ugh, they, they don't even know what maximum is, you know, just why don't you just turn them loose for a couple of weeks, get them acclimated to like trying hard and then, uh, back it down. What's your, uh, what's your response to that? I I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here quick. Um, I think that's, I think that is kind of a good critique. I, and, and that's something that we often talk about is kind of having that that bro phase or that phase where 
training might not be totally quote unquote optimal, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and I think there is definitely something to be said for having an anchor for what hard training is. So for what a true RP 10 is, because I think of plenty of people go throughout their entire training career. And especially if they're exposed to really good information right off the bat, they might not end up down the the failure rabbit hole that that a lot of people start <laughs> right. out with. Um, and, and, and again, even though it might not be optimal in the short term, there there there's probably benefits in terms of anchoring that experience, because something we often like to point out is, OK, hey, we're saying there's potential utility to these sets that might be, you know, more than four reps in reserve, you know, four to seven reps in reserve. We think that can still be a pretty tough set. So but you don't really have that. You know, if, if you've never experienced what failure is and you and somebody says, OK, this set can be, you know, four to seven reps in reserve, you know, you can end up with using way too light of loads. Um, because, again, if a true RP6 set, is it as hard as an RP8 set? No, but it's not a super easy set. And, you know, that set in isolation is not as difficult. But um, if, if you're kind of following our recommendation and performing more sets, um, it's it's a different kind of hard and it can still be overall difficult. So to, to directly answer your question, I think there is some truth to that critique. Um, and, and I guess I would just agree that RPE should be anchored, even if it's not optimal acutely, because that can uh, kind of set the stage for for some of these strategies we're talking about. Yeah, I don't have too much to add. I, I think the, the other thing to mention there is that, you know, there's other goals to be had for people that are just starting training. Obviously, Jordan, you can speak on this way better than we can, but establishing the habit and the behavior change and the adherence obviously is the by far the most important thing for the for the beginner. Um, I think our, our conversations often re- revolve around like what is optimal for these adaptations of muscle size and muscle strength and then kind of work our way back for considerations from there. But um, I, I would agree with Josh. I think if, if we're looking at the overall picture of the research and, and Greg has a really, really good article on, on Stronger by Science about this specifically for hypertrophy. But I, I do think that if, if there is anybody that benefits from training closer to failure, it might be beginners. Uh, but I don't think you just rush into that right away, obviously. I think that's something you kind of work up to, establish kind of what training do you enjoy. I think there's a ton of options that are going to be, you know, produce successful adaptations for people that are just starting. Clearly, pretty much anything works. And then, as Josh said, maybe you work yourself up into this kind of anchoring period where you, you know, we're working closer to failure. So you can kind of set up the rest of your training career where you can be, you know, pretty accurate with RPE. But I think the other thing to be said there is like, there isn't like, RP eight works, but RP seven doesn't like that. That's also not a thing. So it's like, it just, it's kind of this rough, rough proxy for effort, (laughs) effort where it doesn't have to be super, super, super accurate. It's just, you know, a rough gauge of like, how far are you from failure? And obviously that's going to calibrate over time. So, um, yeah, I I think I would agree in general, just understanding that there's other things that come into the picture rather than just how big and strong can you get? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a bigger, a big issue with just people who are faced with RPE in general, if they've never used it before, or or if they're new to to resistance training, period, they're like, well, my the accuracy of my RPE, I'm so I'm very concerned because is this was this really a six or a seven or an eight? I I can tell you what a ten was, right? Get get that anchor, but I'm not really concerned with the accuracy. I'm more concerned with the precision. It used the same scale the same way each time. Stuff's gonna shake out in the wash, you know. So it's like if somebody's doing sets at eight, but they're really at seven, like. I don't care. Particularly, it just matters so much less if you're new. Like if you're like the sets of seven are going to be very productive for you, um, and then only those like small sort of differences are going to matter for the trained person. You know, way later on. So I just I kind of shrug my shoulders when people say, "Well, it's you know 
this stuff isn't useful for, for newbies. I think it's that, that whole question just matters way less, like find stuff you like to do, do it. Uh, and then it, the, the intensity, I actually think I would uh, probably agree. It should be lower. Why? Cause you have less sort of training history to, to d- draw from as far as tolerating the training, injury risk reduction, et cetera. Not that I think that the load is inherently risky. Uh, but, but I think if you had to pick which one was a, 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 a riskier situation, somebody who's completely untrained going to 10, <laughs> you know, or going to eight, well, I, I'd say there's probably a non-zero difference at eight, but it's probably not, not, a, not a whole lot. But if I'm trying to err conservatively, I'd, I'd probably think that the, the lower exertion sets are probably, probably a little bit better. And again, because there's this dose dependent relationship between training volume and all of these positive health sort of outcomes and, and also performance outcomes in a way it's like, well, I still don't want you to go to 10 cause you're going to do less. Right. And it's like, uh, so maybe at some point, uh, an interesting, it's not interesting. It's just a funny aside. I, uh, when COVID hit my gym had shut down for a few weeks, there was another gym, a competitor's gym, uh, that opened up under the radar, but this was like this commercial powerlifting gym hybrid. It's kind of strange. There's mirrors everywhere. There's like way too many machines, but they had a bunch of like good equipment. So I was like, whatever, I guess we'll train here. Monday was also, is always international chest day. So bench day I had not seen, cause I'd been just training. I've been training in powerlifting or strength gyms for so long. I had not seen so many failed reps in a single gym visit than I did in this commercial setting. People are just failing all over the place. And these are folks who are like, obviously had been working out for a while. And I'm like, why is that? Why is that the sort of thought? Like it has to be like very close to failure. And I'm like, well, these guys haven't read, read data room strength yet. They'll get there. They'll get there eventually. Um, and I think, you know, those folks, I wouldn't consider them new, but, but even for them, it's the same advice. It's like, look, man, as long as it's kind of hard, you're probably getting a pretty good stimulus from that. And then the the differences are going to be more specific to the individual rather than like uh, uh, always going to 10. So yeah, I, I don't know that that wasn't my criticism of the data-driven strength approach, but I know that people say that. But it's the same c- criticism against RPE. They're like, no, you just got to pick a discrete load. And it's, it's which is completely bonkers to me. I, I, and I, I give people this like thought experiment. It's like, all right, so let's say you had a new lifter uh, and then at the end of their first or second week of training, they squatted 135 pounds for a couple sets of five. And each set, you as the coach rated the RPE based on bar velocity and how the lifter you know, moved and technique and everything else that you take into consideration. You called it a seven. Each set, they, looked, they could do a few more reps. And you're thinking, oh, good. I get to add weight next week. Next week comes in, you put 140 pounds on the bar for their work sets. And the first set of five looks like an RPE 10 just bone on bone grinder for, because there are a bunch of different things that go into performance. And it's like, well, there's more weight on the bar, but are they stronger? And based on your model, which you guys have eloquently described, well, the velocity is way less. So they probably aren't producing more force. It's just the weight on the bar is heavier, but their, their strength potential is lower. And it's like, did that extra weight actually drive more fitness adaptation? And in your guys' model, no, it's about probably the same amount of fitness adaptation, but at a significantly higher cost the adaptations out of proportion to the stimulus. And then I just want people to like take that in and, and harness it and then, and make uh, better training decisions. So I think you guys are doing a good thing here. Obviously we, we resonate with it. Um, okay. So we handled the novice concern. What about hypertrophy? What about getting jacked? 
Like, is this, would you, you, you alluded to this earlier, Zach, about, you know, maybe this isn't the same for hypertrophy. Although to my knowledge, the proximity to failure studies on hypertrophy, the only studies in novices showing that going to failure is probably better is on isolation movements. Yep. That's single joints. Yep. Yeah. Single joint stuff. So if you want to take curls to failure, like YOLO, it. do your thing. <laughs> I care less. I could care yep. less. Uh, but do you think that this actually like this uh, similar approach works for hypertrophy? Meaning like you could do more sets with less fatigue cost, like that would be the idea. Do you think that that works? Yeah, so I think this is a, a way more complicated conversation. I, I think the first thing to state up front, just once again, is we're kind of working these conclusions off of the longitudinal evidence that we have. Um, and so there's obviously gonna be limitations to that. But I would say, based on the evidence that we do have, if the load is greater than a 10 RM, so somewhere around 75% of one RM or greater, we kind of view a, a rep as a rep for hypertrophy. So whether you're completing that in, you know, four sets of eight, or you're kind of doing that more, more along the lines of like 16 sets of two or something like that, um, it kind of seems to be the same. And there's, there's kind of a ton of different studies that, that break up the reps or proximity to failure in different ways. And it looks about the same. Now, the practical considerations of that are a little bit different, I would say, is that, you know, doing the very, very high set approach for hypertrophy it almost seems to me as like you're looking for the, for the, I don't want to say session RP, but like the subjective RP of what's the most efficient kind of configuration of the set in that zone so that you can do the most training volume. Because in general, as you mentioned, Jordan, there's kind of a dose response relationship there. Is doing uh, 32 singles with 82, 80% on one RM the most efficient way to, to do things? Probably not, but you could make that conclusion kind of based on what we're saying. So I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to put that out there as kind of my recommendation. There's obviously a sweet spot between, you know, breaking these sets up so that all the sets are super low velocity loss versus doing them all to failure. There's obviously a sweet spot in there for hypertrophy that um, you could probably do. So kind of the, um, kind of the model we've, you know, just put back on the table. We're not necessarily saying this is better, but this is something you could do and theoretically get similar results and maybe have downstream effects for your training program. Let's say, for example, you have a, a leg day or, or a lower body focus day where you're going to do squats with leg extensions afterwards. Instead of performing three sets of eight all at a nine RPE, maybe you perform your first set of eight on squats to like an eight RPE. So what that does is a kind of a tester set to set that 10 RM load. So we're very, very confident on that day. The load is heavy enough so that we can break up the work and still, um, you know, elicit maximal adaptations in muscle size. And then maybe we do a few like kind of like, it's like a mix between myo reps cluster set kind of, kind of deal where you break up the remaining repetitions into smaller sets. So theoretically, you're, you're decreasing the RP on that work, a little bit less fatigue, and most importantly, maybe mentally, the next when you go into those leg extensions, you're a little bit fresher, and you can and you can have the totality of, of hypertrophy stimulus for the session be a little bit higher if you're using some of those strategies. Once again, not necessarily saying that's better, but it's an option we can put back on the table, and you can kind of use your your programming tool belt to kind of fit that in where where it may be a, a, a appropriate option. Now, the, the other side of that that I want to be very clear about is, you know, as soon as we start dipping below that 75% of 1RM range, we become increasingly less confident that you can train farther from failure and maximize muscle size. That's where the kind of the traditional effective reps model, I think, has a lot of credence and is really, really strong in that regard because the, the, the farther we get away from, from that 80% uh, or 75% of 1RM mark, the, those loads are effective because they establish relatively high levels of motor unit recruitment from rep one, which is kind of the, the theory behind that. The farther you get away from those loads, 
that's that's where we become a little bit less uh, less confident that's the case, and you might need to take them a little bit closer to failure to elicit you know high levels of uh, uh, mechanical tension on the fiber level or something like that. But I would say in general, yeah, you can definitely do that as kind of an approach as long as the loads are heavy enough. But Josh, go ahead, clean that up if I miss anything. No, just to put a bow on it, I'll just kind of give two scenarios and and how we like to think through this. So the first scenario is uh, when hypertrophy is the only goal. So whether you're, you know, you don't care about strength at all. And I'd also kind of loosely add into this category, uh, a strength athlete that really wants is, is, you know, far out from competition, you know, for whatever reason, they're deciding, Hey, th- for this protocol, the, the primary goal is hypertrophy outcomes. So in those cases, we think that the, the general recommendation of staying, you know, one to four reps in reserve is a pretty good one. Um, but what, what we're trying to add to the picture is that if for whatever reason that's not going well for an individual, maybe they do feel disproportionate fatigue from RP7, RP8 sets. We're saying, hey, if the load is sufficiently heavy and you're trying to accumulate work on a multi-joint movement, you know, maybe you do want to explore some sets that are lower than RP6. Again, we think that one to four RIR range is a really, really good starting point um, and is a really good recommendation. But we think the proof of concept within the research is there to indicate that this is another option on the table when hypertrophy is is the primary goal. The second scenario is for the strength athlete. So um, I'm primarily thinking about the strength athlete. Maybe they're in, you know, the cycle preceding a meet or something like that. Um, and OK, we're uh, accumulating this training volume and we're kind of using our model to maximize force production. Um, and, and the question is, okay, so you're accumulating that training volume. And although the goal is to maximize strength in kind of this short to moderate term time period for this meet, um, it, it's probably not the end of the world if we're accumulating some hypertrophy. And that would probably be advantageous to some degree. So um, the way that I like to think about it is, like Zach said, if if we're above 75% of 1RM, a rep is kind of a rep. So we are reasonably confident that the hypertrophy stimulus is still very high when we're employing these these strategies of reducing intercept fatigue um but i i would not say we are 100 certain of that in terms of long-term hypertrophy outcomes like we we uh the way we kind of periodize things accounts for this uncertainty so early on in a training cycle farther out from a meet farther out from a test we will typically um kind of bias things towards higher intercept fatigue higher average rpes because from a hypertrophy perspective we are not certain that if you train at these lower RPs year round, again, even if load is, is sufficiently heavy, that you are going to maximize hypertrophy in the long term. Again, it's it's kind of how, like, what does the research indicate? Where's the uncertainty? And how do we incorporate that into our model? So again, that's kind of our working uh, our working model, but there's some uncertainty in there. And, and we like to bake that uncertainty into how we, how we uh, do things in practice. Yeah, I like it. It's like, a, it's a hedge just based on, on where yep. we're at and the limitations. Um, I, I find we, I, I used to get these questions all the time. What's better for hypertrophy, four sets of eight or eight sets of four. And at the time I was like, I mean, it's one exercise on one day. So I don't think that it matters period, but just within that, I, I still don't know that it matters the difference between four and eight, because I think as long as you're getting, you're working with sufficiently heavy weight, I feel like stimulus is going to be the same, at least for, uh, for hypertrophy. Uh, I think you're going to get different adaptations with respect to strength, but you know, if we're just talking about hypertrophy, the question is, is kind of it's, it's moot at that point. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, but the, the layer of complexity on top of that is, all right, well, what about a week, mm. a whole training week? Yep. And it's like, at some point you're splitting things up into either so many different sets or so few sets that the session fatigue is, is high. One thing we've been playing around with is this sort of rating of fatigue, which we incorrectly named session RPE. It's not session RPE. It's session, it's a rating of fatigue. It's effectively like how fatigued do you feel at the end of a session? And so some people will, you know, let's that example of doing 32 singles versus four <laughs> sets of eight, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, but yeah. And they're like, my rate of fatigue is extremely high mm-hmm. for whatever reason. You're like, all right, well, that's not optimal because then the, the next sessions where we're still trying to keep volume relatively high to drive these adaptations in this case, hypertrophy, you won't be able to do as much because your fatigue is high. On the other hand, if instead of doing four sets of eight for that, uh, what is that? 32 rep you do, you know, one set of, uh, 15 and another set of uh, 17, you know, at RP nine or RP 10 for both. It's like, well, I don't know if that's any easier. There's some sweet spot, right. like you guys were saying. So um, yeah, it just, you can't look at it just on a day, a single day basis. You gotta look over the week and then maybe over the whole block or training program and kind of what you're doing. And obviously you guys are doing that, but I, I don't want our listeners at home to be like, yeah, none of this matters. I'm just going to pick a set amount of reps I need to do per day. And then wherever the sets fall, where they are, like, I'm just not going to pay attention right. to it. It's like, on some level, you have a bunch of flexibility, but you, your individual response to that uh, probably needs to be baked in there at multiple different levels. So, uh, okay, we covered the uh, hypertrophy thing, strength thing, novice thing. Um, we talked about effective reps. I think that's good. Uh, all right, here's your chance to respond to the internet. What are people getting wrong about this model? Like, because I'm sure people tag you all the time and stuff on the internet. If, if especially on Instagram, if you guys are anything like this, people just will tag you and stuff to either get you involved in an argument or like, you know, hey, you guys would like this. Well, what are people getting wrong about this model? Yeah, I mean, I think Josh was hitting on it earlier, but there's a kind of a few things that come to mind. The first one is that the difference between you know an absolute velocity versus a relative velocity. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. when people are like, um, you know, the data-driven strength guys advocate for low RP training, that means that they, you know, want us to do like, you know, old school, very strict West Side speed work, like with fifty percent of one RM, and that that is not what we're what we're advocating for. The, the kind of the going back to that kind of high school physics equation, I think, is a good starting point. The thing that's going to increase force production the most is the load on the bar. So we very much think that you know the the higher percentages of one RM, and to your point, Jordan, the 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 velocity specific nature of strength is still very very relevant. It's just that you know there's a there's a little bit of a wider band we can accumulate once we take in the logistical considerations of doing you know 32 one RMs a week probably isn't going to be sufficient amount of training volume to to elicit all the adaptations we're after. So I think that's the first thing to get on the table is that we're not advocating for like super super fast reps. What we're advocating for is to keep the relative velocity for a given load relatively high. So, you know, again, taking the example of using 80% of 1RM, break up the work so that there's not a ton of loss of bar speed throughout your amount of reps you're accumulating with that load. Just break it up so that, you know, you can stay relatively consistent there. That's the first thing. The second thing is how much we think that um, those top sets in a training program are important. Like, again, going back to our force production model, the thing that is going to be the highest force production and therefore the highest stimulus for strength in our kind of model is going to be a very, very heavy single. So we think those are vital to to keep in when you're doing this kind of lower fatigue work because that's going to be the most specific practice to a 1RM and ultimately maximize the transference of this of this other kind of volume work that we're, that we're doing. Um, 
those are the two that come to my mind, Josh. I don't know if you have any other that kind of kind of ring home. Uh, two two more points that came to mind. Um, the first is that we would tell people to train at an RP three. So, like in other words, we would actually write down on the spreadsheet or on the program or whatever. Hey, I want this. I want you to I want you to hang out around RP one to three on this set or RP one to four, whatever. Um, that's very much not the case because you know. It's it's pretty dang hard to tell how close you are to failure when you know you're not really around RP six or above. So that that's something that I think you know some people would assume is that you know we we prescribe these RPEs, uh, you know RP three four five. Um, the the second thing um, I would add is that and and I kind of touched on this earlier is that this is easy training, um, and I definitely don't think that's the case. Um, for example, in one of these, we call them low fatigue strength phases where we really lean into these strategies. Zach, I'll use Zach as an example, cause I think it's a really good example. And, and we often train together. Um, you know, I think he's benching four or five times a week and what his, what his protocols look like are working up to, to a hot, uh, a top heavy single or double, and then he'll back it off and use like 82 and a half percent for typically nine or 10 sets of two. Now, are those sets of two in isolation difficult? They're they're not super difficult. Um, but when when you have um, you know other obligations in your life to get to, and you're trying to ensure that um, you know you're not resting ten minutes in between these sets, it's 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 a different kind of hard. But we find it to be just as hard, and, and oftentimes harder than kind of a, a, a traditional way of, of of training these days. So, those are my two things. Is that you know. We, we, we use kind of, um, we'll often use a top set and calculate an estimated 1RM off that and then use a percentage of the 1RM for the prescriptions for these lower RPE work. Um, we don't necessarily like prescribe RP3 or 4. And then the second thing is that, you know, these sessions are easy. So th- those are the two things that come to mind. Just, just to add one more piece, Josh, that last point you made, I, I've kind of been looking out for any evidence to kind of confirm that feeling that we've had of like, man, these sessions are hard. Everybody's saying they're easy. There was a, a pretty recent study published that looked at like 85% of 1RM for four sets of six versus four sets of six, but they had like mini rest intervals between every single repetition. And the session RPs were the exact same over the course of the, the seven weeks. So I, I think that that experience kind of kind of reigns true in the sense that it's not hard in an isolated sense, but like when you have to stay mentally turned on for like a 20 minute work period of like doing all these reps it's very difficult you can't really look at your phone you got to make sure you're staying on task because you know you got to get places after the gym after your session and stuff so yeah i think it's it's not hard in like the technical sense of rp and effort but like it's it's still it's still hard in, in another sense yes i have two work at recent workouts that have come to mind i had like nine sets of four at 270 kilos or nine sets of three at 270 which is not a heavy weight necessarily for me and none of the RPEs for any individual set was probably above a six or whatever, unless I was just getting, you know, fed up with deadlifting, but I'd tell you what, man, <laughs> that's a half hour yep. of just deadlifting yeah. and focusing on right. that. I also had one, I had 19 singles at uh, 182 kilos on bench. And I just like, again, none of the singles were hard per se. And like a, wow, that was grindy and sticky or whatever. Right just keeping count. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, like I felt like I needed a tally yeah. board. Yes. It's hard in a different way. And, uh, in any case, yes, not, not easy. Can confirm. Zach um, literally does keep a tally. I, I do. That's, that's I, what I need. On the whiteboard. It's just like, it's the only thing I can do during that time period or else I get distracted. Just, yeah. 
<laughs> one yeah, more, one need- more quick, one more quick caveat is that even though we're saying this, this stuff can be difficult and it can be hard to stay engaged for this extended period of time. We, we, we have found ways to keep the session times reasonable and often typically the same as, as kind of a higher RP yep. approach. Um, so that's a, that's another thing I'd add is that as long as you're, you're not messing around too much between sets and you're staying on task, uh, we, we have found that you can get these sessions done in, in certainly a reasonable amount of time. Um, it's just kind of a different kind of approach, a different kind of focus you need for these sessions. That's just yeah. something I know will come to mind. Yeah, huge critique of, of our article at first was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is cool and all, but you guys are, you guys, are yeah, you guys are young. I don't have five hours of training. I'm like, well, yeah, you can auto-regulate your rest periods again. Like when, when the interest set fatigue is so low, like, like Josh, Josh said, kind of one of my bench protocols, oftentimes I'll start those with like, I don't know, 20 second rest periods between doubles and they'll kind of slowly increase using kind of that decay and bar speed as my guide. I don't even use a barbell velocity tracker sometimes, just subjectively like, oh, okay, that set definitely there was a significant drop in bar speed, going to increase my rest period a little bit. And then, you know, if you do it that way, you can definitely finish this in a reasonable amount of time. So yeah, I, that's also a very important thing to kind of talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think a heavy, like a five by five, a heavy five by five is going to take you 30 minutes, maybe a little more, including warm up. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, me doing nine triples, at, which I would say is a little bit more productive because the each of those first few reps is probably more uh, productive for me for getting stronger. They took about the same amount of time. It's just, again, it's different. Uh, cool. So now we have summarized uh, your guys' model. I think it's really useful. It, this is like played out it, over many iterations of our different programs and programming ideas we've put out. Um, I think the first time I actually like put pen to paper was after I did a, I was doing a little self-experimentation. Mike and I were working on this together. I would do a heavy single at a, a like nine, one at nine, something like that. Just like as my benchmark for the day, specific practice, all that sort of stuff. And then I would take off 25% and then do sets of four or five mm-hmm. and like six to eight sets and uh, I remember I was telling my friends were like, all your back offsets look real easy. I'm like, well, that that's the point. It's like 70 to 75 percent. It should look pretty easy, you know. But uh, yeah, and I had a bunch of strength gains. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if there's something to this yeah. rather than like doing a heavy five RM, which I haven't done in oh a long time. Not on purpose anyway. Not on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this leads to kind of we were talking to some about hypertrophy a little bit earlier. And I think this is a, a nice way to kind of a last topic here on the podcast because it's, it's getting a little more controversial and uh, I want to talk about it. People get, are getting really upset whenever they're like, yeah, you got to get bigger to get stronger and blah, blah, blah. And then all the logical leaps from there. So you got to eat high, a calorie surplus. You got to do hypertrophy specific training and all this other sort of stuff. And uh, while I agree that getting big and strong gets you big and strong, there's some nuance there. So uh, Jeremy Lenicky has been one of the kind of, biggest voices in the field being like, yeah, well, yeah, it's not surprising that your program that's designed to make you bigger and stronger makes you bigger and stronger. But what if it was just designed to make you stronger versus bigger and stronger? Would it be, you know, what are the differences there? So in your opinion, Zach, we can start with you. How strong is the correlation between like muscle cross-sectional area, muscle size and muscle strength? Yeah. So, I mean, as you mentioned, Dr. Lenicky has done some really, really interesting work. I actually got to listen to his, one of his presentations at a conference um, on this topic and it was as, as his uh, actual published literature is, is very interesting. Um, I think it, so as far as the research I'm aware of, this is definitely not a topic I, I claim to be an expert in. Um, but it's something I do find interesting and kind of continually read as like a side hobby horse. Um, but it, 
as you gain training experience, the, the correlation seems to increase. So when we have absolute novices, Dr. Linicky has got a ton of studies where, especially like bicep curls, for example, one arm will simply do the one RM and the other arm will do, you know, kind of four sets of 10 to failure or something like that. And one arm increases in muscle size, but, uh, you know, similar amounts of muscle strength usually, but the other arm that's doing the one RM only increases in, in muscle strength. So that kind of concept shows that there does seem to be slightly different relationship between the two. Now, um, in terms of as you get more advanced, that correlation seems to become significantly stronger. And uh, Josh, I know you posted about one study that we kind of referenced in general that had a very high R value for pretty well-trained powerlifters um, and kind of the, the muscle thickness of the prime movers and, and their one around. Now, from a purely scientific standpoint, that, that is simply a correlation. And, and kind of designing a study to, to draw causation between an increase in muscle size from training and an increase in muscle strength is very, very difficult. And that is kind of a, a uh, anecdote-driven kind of uh, assumption that people do, do make from, from their kind of years uh, training and, and kind of seeing people get bigger and automatically assuming that is one of the contributing factors uh, to getting stronger. My personal uh, kind of collection of the literature is that there are so many factors that go into performance that it'd be very, very hard to say that there is zero contributory relationship between an increase in muscle size and muscle strength. So do I think that it's often oversimplified how much an increase in, in muscle size leads to an increase in muscle strength? Absolutely. There's tons of neuromuscular adaptations, morphological adaptations that people oversimplify a lot of the times. Um, and, and just a, just a ton of things that go on aside from just, okay, bigger fiber equals bigger, uh, output of force. Um, so that's kind of my standpoint is that I, 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 you know, obviously there's a, there's a back and forth kind of series in sports medicine by some, some guys. And then in Blinicky's group that I think demonstrates kind of my position. Well, it's that it's a contributory factor. It's not necessary nor sufficient, but it is contributory, meaning, you know, an increase in muscle size could lead to an increase in muscle strength if the conditions are right. So kind of taking a step back from like the philosophical side of it, from a training perspective, I think it is very important to kind of include the stimulus for what we believe is going to maximize strength expression. So from our programming standpoint, that's why we try to include top sets essentially year round. Because we do think, you know, all the neuromuscular adaptations associated with increasing um, your skill and proficiency with those heavy loads are something that need to be fostered essentially always for that hypertrophy to transfer or whatever you want to you want to call it there. Um, and, and so that's that's kind of my two cents there. I don't know how helpful that perspective was. It didn't really give any specific numbers, but that's kind of my position. Is that it's essentially it's a contributory relationship. We can't nail down exactly how much an increase in muscle size is going to relate to an increase in muscle strength, especially given the variety of programming factors that could be present in a given scenario that could lead to different outputs just despite similar inputs. So I guess that's my kind of off the, off the cuff answer there. Yeah. I, I would echo what Zach says. I think just to really underscore again, what, what Zach kicked that off with is, you know, huge props to Dr. Lenicky and his group for, um, bringing this to everybody's attention because we just kind of learn that, Hey, a, a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle. You know, there's more contractile tissue. Of course it's going to be stronger. And I, I do still think that's generally the case. Again, I, I don't have the, the cause and effect research to point to, to say that's the case, but I think there's sufficient indicators. But again, point being is I think it's, it's awesome that Dr. Lenicky and his group have, have kind of kept everybody honest in, in how we conceptualize these things. 
Um, so, you know, again, uh, props to, to his group and, and, and other researchers that have brought this point up. So from a practical perspective, I, I think there's two reasons why we still kind of bias hypertrophy in the way we program, or at least, hey, this is going to be a considerable emphasis, especially at certain uh, periods in, you know, your, your training cycle. So the first one is that, you know, my opinion is that we have sufficient indicators to say that uh, increasing muscle size has a contributory effect to increasing muscle strength. Like Zach said, it's not super clean. It's not one-to-one by any means. For example, if you put novices on a, um, on a strength program and you look at their change in muscle size and change in muscle strength, um, the change in muscle size accounts for like one, two, 3% of the variation in the change in muscle, uh, in the change in muscle strength. So point being is if, if you get a novice stronger, it, it, it's not really dependent on getting them bigger. But that brings me to my next point is that when you look at more trained individuals um, and you look at their change in muscle size uh, compared to change in muscle strength longitudinally, we see that the change in muscle size uh, accounts for a lot more of the variation uh, of the change in muscle strength. And again, is that that perfect evidence? Um you know, it's not ca- it's it's not necessarily causal evidence. It is correlational by nature. So, of course, there are huge limitations to that. Like you said, Jordan, a program that's designed to get you bigger and stronger is going to get you bigger and stronger. So, there's probably going to be some correlation there. Um, but you know, the 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 R values we see there are pretty. You know, mm-hmm. they they definitely make you turn your eye. Um, so that to me, that's an indicator. Is it proof? No, absolutely not. It's not proof. But to me, it's an indicator. Um, and, and again, from a practical perspective, is I think that the, the advantage, if you will, to kind of focusing on muscle hypertrophy is that this is an adaptation that is, I think we have a lot of, you know, it is something that is considerably modifiable. Um, so even sure. if it's not like, hey, I'm going to put on X units of muscle mass and I know that that's going to lead to Y units of strength gain. Um, I do think that over a long training career, um, you know, this is something that we can increase considerably, whereas some of the other neuromuscular factors are probably just going to come from training heavy and training often and, and training consistently, whereas this is something that might have slightly different considerations. So again, uh, I think that, that from a practical perspective, the fact that it is considerably modifiable, modifiable is, is a reason we emphasize it. Zach looks like you have something. Yeah, I was just the other thing I was going to add. And Greg Knuckles has a very, very good article on this. Uh, I think I've mentioned two of his articles now, but if you haven't read his article on kind of muscle size and muscle strength, it goes through a ton of the relevant factors. But one thing that people often don't consider too, is that even if let's just say you only cared about strength, increasing muscle size probably contributes to an increase in mechanical advantage for the exact same level of force. So if, if you were to get bigger, and you didn't necessarily have any contributory relationship from that additional tissue, that amount of force you can still produce might actually be a little bit more mechanically efficient. That might also allow you to lift a little bit more weight. So that's just a second side tangent. So even if it wasn't a contributory relationship, it might also be like a reason that you'd still want to get a little bit more jacked aside from looking at yourself in the mirror. But yeah, that's just a side tangent. To add, to add one more caveat is again, I think, I think the take home here is that it's complicated. Um, so like, like Zach said, um, there are potential mechanical advantages to be gained from simply getting bigger beyond just the potential increased force production from having more contractile tissue. 
But there are also potential negative consequences to that, uh, primarily thinking about penation angle here that actually makes uh, the contractile tissue less efficient. So we have, okay, we get bigger. Does this, um, does this increase in contractile tissue have, you know, actually increase more force in and of itself? We think that's probably the case. Are we certain? No, we totally see how somebody else could come to a different conclusion. But we also have these other things that are indirect and some are some are beneficial, some are some are drawbacks. So it's complicated. Our hunch and our, our practical conclusion at the, at the moment is that it, it should be a, a good amount of your focus for training for strength, but we could certainly be convinced otherwise. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I have a lot of convincing arguments mm-hmm. <laughs> to add that are different. I guess uh, my perspective is, is slightly different though. Eh, 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 in some ways you, you mentioned that the data that we have on lean body mass and muscle cross-sectional area and force production is, is all, uh, correlational observational data, which is true. I mean, you have, you have some, you know, prospective and retrospective studies, but they're still just measuring the, the correlation here. Um, and I definitely think as you get more trained, yeah, those with more lean body mass tend to be the more successful folks when it comes to strength, but I don't necessarily know that that's a unidirectional or certainly not bidirectional sort of relationship. I think it might just be an artifact, meaning that you're doing all this strength training that causes the conditions necessary for muscle hypertrophy, just due to the nature that we train strength. (laughs) And then you see this, you see this, uh, sort of manifestation, yeah, people got bigger. Why? Well, because the strength program provided the necessary internal milieu, the necessary stimulus to to get bigger. Um, I don't know that you can really separate those, particularly for powerlifting. Yep. Um, I always like watching some of the Olympic weightlifters, particularly some of the lightweight men who, in some cases, look like pizza delivery guys, <laughs> and then they, you know, snatch, you know, 180 kilos. Hundred. You're like, what? How is this even possible? That's insane. And they're like, you know, just just real strong. Obviously, anecdote doesn't trump anything here, but um, where I where I kind of push back against the logical leaps that people make from the connection between muscle cross-sectional area and improve, increased force production is people think weight gain or die, bulk or die. I got to get big to get strong, and I got to do it now, early, particularly earlier in their training. And it's like, okay, hold on, revert. Like if you weren't listening ten minutes ago <laughs> when Josh was going on about the relationship between muscle cross-sectional area and force production and strength in new lifters, go back and listen to that because the changes in muscle mass, the difference between individuals only accounts for a very, very small, very, very small amount of their differences in strength. So that's not the time to be like bulk or die. One, the conditions are not ripe for you to grow. Like they're just really not because you're not adapted to any of this training. You're going to have to like build up some tolerance and only then, and then can you grow, uh, and rate rapid weight gain is probably just a bad idea in, in, in general. Later on in your training, I think when you're talking about like maximizing your competitiveness in a given weight class, there are other contributing factors like who's in your weight class, what federation are you in, you know, what's the weight cut thing look like. Um, but that's a, another conversation. But I just think when people go to these logical ends where it's like, yeah, you got to gain weight to get stronger because I got to get bigger muscle mass to get stronger. And it's like, I'd really start looking at your programming first. If your programming is perfect to a T and you're really individualizing it to how you're responding, like, cool, that's all, that all checks out. Yeah. I I think that there are other things to consider. And one of those might be weight gain, uh, slow weight gain to gain more muscle mass, but I don't feel similar to you guys. I don't feel confident that that's going to really take you over the, take you over the edge. Um, and now because I get to share, this is my podcast, I guess <laughs> my experience when I went from 181 to 198, uh, well now 183 to 205, my total went up by almost 500 pounds. 
now. And that was a two year sort of thing. And it's like, that was awesome. That was the most fun training I've ever had. I subsequently have tried to move up to the 105 class and started gaining weight. And everyone's like, oh yeah, are you like super strong now? Are you squatting 700? Are you deadlifting 800? And I'm like, no, because, and, and, and I'm not like doing bodybuilding specific work or whatever to gain, you know, must just straight up muscle mass. I'm doing the same training. I'm eating a calorie surplus, whatever volume is high and I'm getting bigger. I look more jacked. My sleeves are smaller, but, but the actual strength gain hasn't necessarily, hasn't necessarily been there. So, um, I think that's combined with reading Lenicky's stuff and kind of just looking more critically at what my previous assumptions were. I'm just more skeptical that small changes in lean body mass confer large advantages on the platform. If you're talking about somebody who goes from 140 pounds to 200 pounds and they've gained, you know, half of that is lean body mass and they did that over a couple of years. Sure. I'm on board lean body mass, probably in addition to actual physical size and training history, all of that has contributed to them improving their strength. But we're talking about somebody who gains two or three pounds of muscle, which is hard work, mm-hmm. by the way, that's hard work. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Better for your baby gap tees, but I don't know that your deadlift <laughs> went up, you know, I don't know that your deadlift went up as a result of that. And so. I think, I think a lot of times this is kind of demonstrated in the anecdote of like people running like a hypertrophy cycle that has absolutely zero um, practicing of the test, which is something like we, we try to strongly advocate against and like it not panning out. I think that can happen a lot of times is that, you know, in kind of our mental model is that you've never really gave anything for that additional muscle mass to kind of be transferred or or, or anything. So if if you're including those very specific practice to the test, I think the, the likelihood that there is any transference there of any additional muscle mass that you gained is probably higher. But I think the kind of overall thesis of this conversation is that, yeah, maybe, maybe a relationship, but we don't really know how strong and kind of, kind of just got to <laughs> yeah. go from there. But yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's about all we can say. And, you know, probably putting our chips on the side of like, yeah, muscle mass probably matters to some degree. Um, and so because it's a modifiable factor, get more jacked and, and 95% of the time people want to get more jacked anyway. So that, you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes. But yeah, saying. exactly. So that's from there. It's just kind of, you know, don't know. Your, uh, your guys' hypertrophy blocks. Uh, Josh, you, you mentioned you don't, you don't program like specific, or I say, I would just say non-specific hypertrophy blocks for your powerlifting folks. Just like, Hey, uh, instead of the squat today, you're going to do just leg press. That's not usually something you guys program. No, like, like Zach said, um, we definitely keep a good amount of, of top set work in basically year round. Um, now will the protocols change a little bit? Yeah, a little bit, especially depending on the individual. If, if they feel smoked after their single at eight, okay, maybe this is somebody we do a triple at seven on or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I it would be very, very, it would be a very weird situation if we were to say, hey, no more, no more squatting for you. Um, you're just going to do leg press and leg extensions. And, and you're, uh, then when we go to your strength phase, week two, man, things are going to really, really go crazy. <laughs> yeah. um, definitely, definitely not the case. Um, sure. You know, we, we, we keep things pretty specific because similar to what I was talking about in terms of accounting for uncertainty and how we periodize things and, and you know, depending on what the primary goal of the phase is, um, when, when we were talking about proximity to failure, I think it's the same thing here. It's like maybe maybe hypertrophy should not really be a consideration at all from a practical perspective. And if that is the case, I don't want to be completely screwed. And I think sure. our I, I think our the way we do things right now would would allow us to at least squeak by um <laughs> is, is kind of how i think about it. it's like okay what's the uncertainty here and how do we kind of account for it so yeah that's kind of how i think about it yep on the other end of that uh, do you guys work with any like physique athletes like any bodybuilders anything like that 
not here and there. Yeah. Go Do you, it. would you ever program like a strength block? Just straight Ooh, up for that's a yeah, good question. This is a good question. So we've, we've thought about yeah. this a little bit recently. Um, I think in, in the sense, like the older kind of idea of like, I'm going to do a strength block so I can lift heavier loads in the 8 to 12 rep range. Oh, right. I think that idea probably doesn't really make a ton of sense. But I think um, – so there was a recent paper that came out that kind of showed like a low-volume strength phase where they were lifting like 1 to 3 1RMs, led to significantly greater gains in hypertrophy. There's a ton of caveats that study, the primary one being the absolute gains in muscle thickness were super, super small. But the, the kind of overall idea there is there might be kind of a – a rationale for like some type of volume cycling of some kind um, in this kind of resensitization mm -hmm. effect. Um, I, I think anecdotally people seem to have a pretty strong um, kind of gravitation towards that idea. But, um, you know, Mike's actually talked about this, the, the selection bias there is probably pretty high. If you go on, you know, COVID quarantine and aren't able to train for three weeks, the people talking on Instagram are probably the ones that came back to training and had a really a ton of success, but the people that didn't probably aren't saying much on their, on their social media. So that's another thing to consider there. But, but the idea being that, you know, if we have these lower volume phases where you kind of implement a little bit more strength work because it's fun or something like that, I think there could be a case to be made that that's going to um, potentially kind of potentiate future hypertrophy oriented training. Um, is my confidence in that very high? Not really. I think it's a it's a you know a viable argument someone can make. I don't think there's super convincing evidence to say you definitely should be doing this. But um, but yeah, I think there's been a few cases that in the literature of, of some varying degrees of kind of how it's organized. But um, I don't think that's like a, a starting point for most people. But I think it's a viable option you could include if that's something um, you'd want to do. And I think the psychological yeah. psychological periodization of that too is often probably something that's really, really important. If you have somebody hammering away at the exact same training program for 16 weeks and you give them a two or three week break doing something else, I think that's, you know, going to leverage a ton of benefits from that aside from the actual training program itself, just because you're going to come back to that more hypertrophy oriented training with a ton more gusto and kind of go after it that way. But yeah. Just to add one quick layer to what Zach was saying. Um, is the the potential implementation of like a strength phase for a physique athlete. I think it, and I think Zach would agree with this. It would, our hunch is that what is potentially there would come down to the periodization of intraset fatigue. Um, so basically what that means is, is, you know, you take these strength phases where there's low intraset fatigue because, you know, you're mostly doing strength oriented work, lower rep ranges. So by definition, that's lower intraset fatigue. Um, and this is just like totally anecdotal, but there's kind of two observations we've had that are like, make us interested in this idea. Um, the first is that again, the way we periodize things is that in a hypertrophy focus phase, we have higher intercept fatigue, um, in a strength focus phase, we have lower intercept fatigue. And when we transition from cycle to cycle, so you go from low to higher intercept fatigue, things seem to like, just feel different. And is that indicative of the stimulus? Is that probably just because it's novel? Yes. But we're, we're like, this is, this is, this is interesting. At least another sure. thing is I think when people implement like really heavily metabolic stuff. So, so something like myo reps, um, it seems to have, it seems to kind of wear off over time now is what's wearing off just your ability to buffer the metabolites probably, but is there something to your ability to buffer that your, those metabolites and your ability to uh, receive a hypertrophic stimulus from it? Another possibility, maybe, um, again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying this is the case, but it's just something that we've noticed and we're like, Hey, this is something that's kind of interesting is okay. Also from, uh, uh for a strength athlete, 
periodizing intercept fatigue because of this stuff we've talked about throughout the podcast, but also for a, a, a physique athlete is hmm, maybe there's something there for potentiating future, you know, higher RPE work. So, um, again, don't hold me to that, but just some, some thoughts we've had. I think we can all agree that using a strength block so that you can lift heavier weights during a hypertrophy block is probably not the move. Like that's not why we're doing it. But yeah, I think it's interesting that a number of people, the field, um, you know, have started, have talked about and implemented this sort of volume cycling approach. It's like, yeah, you're hammering away, hammering away at this hypertrophy program for whatever it's 12 weeks, 16 weeks, whatever it is. And then you do a four or five week strength block. And it's like, I don't know that you're getting a bunch of hypertrophy stimulus out of that block. You're not losing any, you're not like you're going to atrophy because you're still very, very active. But when you return back to the hypertrophy block or a different hypertrophy block, yeah, maybe you get a little extra gusto because you took a, you took a little break, um, while maintaining a lot of those previous adaptations, which is kind of the whole idea behind periodization. It's like, all right, we're going to try to maintain stuff that we're not actively working on, build new stuff, and then, you know, rinse cycle, you know, rinse, wash, repeat, do that sort of thing. But, uh, I, I don't know that we'll ever get enough data on this to be like confident. It's like, how yeah. think about how long the studies would have to be right. It, like for hypertrophy. And then like, obviously for these blocks, it's like, oh yeah, we did a uh, six different, you know, six month long hypertrophy studies where these very small programming changes. And it's like, yeah, okay. Us three would be interested, <laughs> but everybody else would be like, is yeah, dumb. No, thanks. And, and I do want to also want to say for our folks who are like gen pop health, like that you're training, like just take the last 30 minutes and delete it from <laughs> your brain. Fun. It is yeah. utterly irrelevant. Like, yeah. don't worry about it. You don't We're in the weeds. Yeah. yeah. We are in the weeds with the zebras. <laughs> Bad things are happening. <laughs> yes. Um, Guys, this has been awesome. We could talk for a long time on different stuff related to strength because we're all strength nerds. I love it. Uh, where can people find more uh, out about you? Where can they interact with you? Yeah, so you can find us at data-drivenstrength.com. Whoever took the uh, domain for data, data-drivenstrength.com, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be in contact. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, other than that, you, you know, you can check out our website to, to kind of see what we have to offer. And then other than that, find us on Instagram. I'm josh.data-driven-strength and Zach is zach.data-driven-strength. And you can kind of see uh, guest articles we've written and whatnot from there. And, and just... Seriously, thank you so much for having us on. It was a really good chat. Um, and yeah, man, we really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. I really appreciate yeah. it, man. Yeah, thanks for joining me. All right, that's a wrap on episode 137. Really want to say thank you to the Data Driven Strength Guys for coming on the Barbell Medicine podcast. I have linked all of their contact info in the description or show notes below, depending on where you're getting this podcast. Also, make sure to check out the barbellmedicine.com website. We have a bunch of different articles ranging from everything uh, from training to nutrition to medical topics to pain and injury. We also have a lot of different services that we offer to help support your healthy lifestyle. So check that out. And as a final reminder, leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you're getting this podcast from. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast and we appreciate the support. We'll see you next week here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Again, I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. See you guys next time.
credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.